time to begin. Our opening prayer will be offered by Sister Holly Smith from Provo, Utah. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you all. Uh, we're, I guess, more than halfway through Education Week, which is kind of sad, but it's been a good, fun week, and I'm just happy to be with everyone here. And uh, uh, I was able to see you a second ago. They turned the lights up, and now you've all disappeared. But I, I'll, I'll have faith that you're out there. Um, in any case, I have to, well, uh, let me first of all introduce myself, and it might be helpful for me. Uh, I do this most days. Uh, can we just by raise of hands, how many of you were with us uh, yesterday when we kind of started on this series? So the majority, but not quite everyone. Okay, well that's fun. Um, uh, my name is Terry Milstein. Uh, I'm a professor of ancient scripture here at BYU and have been for far too long. And uh, I direct an excavation in Egypt. Uh, I, I, my PhD is in Egyptology, but also with a secondary emphasis in Hebrew language and literature. My, my master's is in Hebrew. So, uh, I love the Book of Abraham because it's where all those different passions and interests of mine meet. It just is a, a happy, wonderful place for me. Uh, and I love to help people make the scriptures real. Uh, I just uh, love that if we can get into the details and bring a couple of things to life that make it so that the people in them are more real and how we got them is more real. And I uh, think we can apply them to our lives better and draw more power out of them when, when they become real to us. So, that's a passion of mine in my teaching with my students and the things that I write and my podcast and everything that I do. I, uh, that's an emphasis of mine is to make uh, the scriptures more real. But I'll also start out this morning with a little bit of a confession that my, my wife would probably tell me you shouldn't. But, um, the, you know, when you propose lectures to uh, Education Week and then they decide what you'll end up doing, and I usually just say, well, here are like a whole bunch of ideas I had. You choose what you want me to do. And, and they choose two or three that they want me to do, and they did that. But, but you think of lectures that take four, they're a series of four, right? So that you do it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And, uh, and they did that, except for that this is the devotional hour. So for this one, they said, okay, but you're only going to do those, these three. And uh, they told me which three, but I, I was so excited about the one that they cut out that I started to prepare that one anyway. And then I decided that it would be better to squish the two together. So, uh, you may have seen me up here changing the title right before I, because I didn't realize that I hadn't changed the title when I decided to squish it all together. So, uh, we're, uh, we're going to cover a lot of material today. I better get going, uh, because we're going to cover both, but I think that they actually integrate really well. Uh, if we can understand something about the ancient owner of the papyri that uh, Joseph Smith had, that it will help us understand the facsimiles better, and I think all of that lends itself to understanding the temple better. So let's jump in and have some fun, all right? Um, so we have, well, I want to ask us, what do we know about the owners of the papyri that Joseph Smith owned? So I guess his background on that, let's say, 
that uh, Joseph Smith, when he translated the book of Abraham, it was in conjunction with acquiring some papyri. And this is sort of talked about another book of Abraham lectures in the series, and we don't have time to get into it too much here, but we're not 100% sure whether the text of the book of Abraham was actually on that papyri, or whether as he looked at the papyri, that served as a catalyst to open him up to inspiration and he received information uh, that was the book of Abraham. Kind of like, uh, so the first model would be like the Book of Mormon. He's got the gold plates, the text is really out there, and he, as he looks at the plates, or often doesn't even look at the plates, he's able to translate what was on those plates. The second model would be more like the Joseph Smith translation, where he looks at an English translation of the Bible, and he receives revelation for stuff that's not in there. It just opens his mind to receive basically the book of Moses and a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's just revelation that comes to him as he's looking at a different thing. Uh, we don't know how it worked with the book of Abraham, uh, but somehow these papyri are associated with it, and certainly the facsimiles are associated with this. So uh, we're going to talk about the facsimiles today and ask what we know about the owners of uh, the papyri and, and how that might help us understand the facsimiles in the temple. So, uh, we have left most of the papyri that Joseph Smith owned uh, was lost. He had uh, one larger roll, so the two both rolls were fairly good size, you can tell, um, but one was larger than the other. And then a number of fragments. When he first bought the papyri, um, there were several fragments, and it seems like he may have caught, cut off some of the outer edges of the papyri and glued them to paper and put them under glass to protect them, because it is the outer edges of the papyri that deteriorate over time. They protect the inner when you roll something up. They protect the inner rolls, but that outer edge deteriorates. So it seems like he has a number of fragments plus the two rolls. The two rolls die in the Great Earth died. They burn in the Great Chicago Fire, and um, and that's a real tragedy. But uh, that we have a number of fragments. We have eleven of the fragments that he had that were mounted. Um, and so they were owned by three, well, two different people, plus facsimile two was owned by a third, all right? So um, fragments two through nine were owned by a woman named Tasherik Min, all right? So that, that was her name. Uh, she's associated with Min. We're going to hear about the god Min in just a moment, but uh, at least she's named after Min. Um, and she's the, we know she's the daughter of someone named S. Kansu, associated with God Kansu, who we'll also talk about. She was a chantress in the Karnak Temple. So she, um, her job was it would be like the Levites who do psalms. It's perfect to talk about this since we're doing that in Come Follow Me right now. There was music associated with the rituals of that temple, and she was one of the people who was performed that music. So she's a priestess uh, with a specific musical role uh, in, in the Karnak Temple. But we don't know a tremendous amount about her. We know a lot more about the person who owns fragments 1 and 10 and 11, whose name is Hor. That's the Egyptian version of it. Uh, the Greek version is Horos or Horus. Uh, that's how you'll hear it most of the time, because we go with those Greek versions often. But I like the Egyptian version. So um, Hor owned these. So this is fragment 1. Oh, let me make this so you can see it. This is fragment one right here. They've been placed together for this photo, but they're not actually together. Fragment one, fragment 11, and fragment 10. Uh, and I don't know if you can see, but the paper they've been glued to was actually plans for the Kirtland Temple or maybe the Independence Temple. Those are the views right there. Um, so that's kind of fun, isn't it? Anyway, uh, we know the name of the owner 
cover of this papyrus because it's written right here. You can read along with me there, or right there. Um, and uh, we know also his titles, we know his father's name and all sorts of things, but we know his titles because they're also written right there, so you can uh, read along with me here. We've got Chemnetcher, which means God's servant, often translated as a prophet, but it's, it's the servant of a god, of Amun-Ra, and most uh, Egyptian gods have different aspects that there will be a temple built in that aspect. So the Karnak temple, this is Amun-Ra in his form, king of the gods, all right? So he's... God's servant, this is the highest, um, the highest form of being a priest. There are different levels of being a priest, uh, and this is the highest. Now, he's not the, even among those, there's the first Chebnetcher, or God's servant, and the second, and so on. He's not the first. He might be second or third, but he's somewhere. He's near the top of the, the chain at the Karnak Temple, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But, but so he is the, that one of the highest priests, for Amun-Ra in his form of king of the gods at the Karnak Temple. He's also the Chem, so here they just abbreviate Chem, it's Chem Nature still, but they just abbreviate it. Chem uh, of Menu, so he's the servant of men in his form as the one who massacres his enemies. It's a very pleasant form. Um, and also of uh, Khansu, uh, who is powerful in Thebes, or maybe that's better translated to overthrowing Thebes, but that, that's the form of, of Khansu that we're with there. So I know that really excites you. Uh, you're, you're very happy to learn all that, but so we have to ask ourselves, what does that tell us about him? Um, and uh, I think there are some fun things actually that it can tell us and that we can learn from this. So it tells us a little bit about who he is because he also included his father and his father's roles and so on. And this is interesting because the, the uh, being the, the title of being a priest who's a servant of men who massacres his enemies or found who overthrew in thieves are titles that only existed for a couple of hundred years during a particular time period. And so we can actually, because all of the priests who held that role give their names of their fathers, we can actually figure out that they're all descended from each other and we've been able to reconstruct their family tree. This was done largely by someone named Mark Conan and uh, John B. John B. is a professor here. So we know something about uh, Horace's or Horace's grandfather, um, who lives about the time of Alexander the Great. Um, we know about his father. Uh, we even have a statue of his father, which I think is, is kind of fun. Uh, and we know something about all of his descendants, all the way down to Horus VII, who uh, is contemporary with Cleopatra VII. That's the one you know about, Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar. So he most likely would have known at least Cleopatra. Um, so we can trace a, a lot about his family history, but this is the one we're in, in uh, most interested in is Hor, or Horus the first, uh, who is roughly contemporary with the Rosetta Stone. Uh, that's his time period. So this is about 200 BC, right? Now all of these priests served in Thebes in the Karnak Temple. All right, so we have to ask ourselves, is there something about um, Thebes uh, and the way it is and, and what's going on there that would make us so that this papyrus is produced at this time period? that there, there are some interesting um, things that we could, could learn from that. And some of it we need to learn about Thebes itself and especially the Karnak Temple, all right? So um, both Hor uh, and Tashirin serve at the Karnak Temple. It is a huge temple. Out of curiosity, how many people have been to see the Karnak Temple? Well, there are a number of them here, all right. Huge temple, it's the second largest temple complex in the world. Uh, and it is built up over a period of a thousand years, more than a thousand years. 
Um, it's the central feature of Thebes. You just can't miss it when you're in ancient Thebes. It's, it's gigantic. Um, so this whole big thing is the Karnak Temple, actually including this building. This is the Karnak Temple. This is the Luxor Temple. But you can see this is just a giant thing, all right? Um, so uh, Thebes is, has been the religious center of Egypt for about since about 2000 BC. So here during the, uh, what we call the, the Hellenistic or the Greek period, um, it is world famous and has been for a long time for being probably the, the central religious feature in the known world at the time. Um, it's been the political center in Egypt since about 1550. And if we look at the Karnak Temple itself, as I said, it's been built up for over 2,000 years. Uh, it was especially enlarged by Seti I and Ramses II. Uh, and just to give you a couple of pictures, here's the entryway with uh, these different gates that called pylons, one after the other after the other that you can see there. And it's got this avenue of sphinxes that is designed to keep it ram-headed because that's associated with the moon. Um, they're designed to keep bad things away from it, and we'll talk about that as we go along. Here's an aerial shot of, uh, I told you that, that this was built up in, in some ways, so the biggest building happened during the days of Seti the First and Ramses the Second. So this that we call um, the, uh, the forecourt is, has been built by Seti the First, and then uh, what we call the hyperstyle hall was built up largely by Seti, uh, Ramses the Second. Uh, so here's just a picture of that uh, forecourt there. Uh, and then uh, within it, there are little side temples, just to give you an idea. Uh, as we go into the hypostyle hall, just to give you an idea, by the time of Hor, the, the priest, this building is already a thousand years old. Right? It's older, for again, this is already ancient history. This is older than anything we have here in America. All right, That room is 54,000 square feet. Um, and as you look at those columns, uh, there are 135 of those columns. Maybe I'll just uh, give you an idea of the size of these columns uh, here. Let's see if I have a better picture. Uh, uh, I had more pictures of the columns. So I'll just tell you a story about it if you look at this picture. Uh, often when we take uh, taking students there or tour groups there, uh, it's fun to see how big the round the columns are. So we'll have people hold hands uh, with each other and see how many of us it takes to make a circle around the column. And usually it takes me to take upon which column we've chosen and how big are between 12 and 15 people uh, holding their arms out like this to get around the column. These are big, these are big uh, structures, right? So if we were to go on, we can see these architraves that are up here at the top are about 70 tons. And they got them up there. Uh, this is really a jaw-dropping structure. Uh, so again, that's uh, this stuff right here. Uh, it's also worth looking at some of the decorations on the temple wall to get an idea of what's important to them, and we'll come back to this. They're one of the more common scenes is scenes of the pharaoh going to war and being victorious um, and slaying his prisoners uh, or binding them. This it not only told the story of their, their glorious exploits, but it, it uh, had a religious function. It also was a way of making it so that bad things were controlled and contained. Dangerous forces were controlled and contained in the temple. They, they can't run wild. You get rid of all that's bad. Uh, by having those uh, sphinxes out of the front, uh, by having those gates, and we'll talk about the gates as we go along, um, and uh, then by depicting controlling the forces of chaos. Uh, within this temple, there are several 
uh, obelisks. Several of them are now missing because they're, say, in Paris and other places. But um, uh, and the obelisks have a creative function, a creative symbolism. There are a number of other creative symbols, including um, water, because water comes out, or the creation comes out of watery chaos, just like in Genesis one. But the water is also there for bathing, for ritual cleansing. We'll talk about that as we go along. Now, in the Karnak temple, there are uh, four kind of five separate temples within that temple. One of them is uh, for men who massacres his enemies. And so here we see Horus serving as men who massacres his enemies in that little temple right there, the temple of Montu. Uh, then this is the large temple of Amun. Although I will say that there's a temple of Khansu there in the middle of the temple to Amun right here is the temple of Khansu, which uh, a friend of mine is busy kind of refurbishing right now. Uh, and then uh, there is a temple of Khansu that's there on the outside attached to it at the corner, and then a, and then a temple of Mut, but it doesn't have anything to do with Mut, so we won't talk about it. But these three temples, the one of Khansu, and uh, uh, the one of uh, Amun and the one of Montu uh, are all places that the four serve. So, not only do we know a little bit about who he is, we know a lot about what he does because of the titles that he gives us. So that's the question we'll address now. What does he do there in the Karnak Temple? Uh, as a, a priest or a servant of God, uh, he is, um, and, and in another text we learned he was also uh, held the title of God's Father. Those are the two highest. Uh, roles of, of priests, so a, a servant of God and God's Father. Um, and uh, so that one was just below being God's servant, as I said. Uh, he had, uh, it had a lot of administrative duties. We'll look at some of the other duties in just a moment, uh, but I wanted to let you know this one as well. In another text, his Book of the Dead, we learned that he's both the God's Father of the Moon and a title we know nothing about. He's a priest of the two feet of the four of Amun, and we that's a rarely attested. We don't have any idea what that means or, or what he does with that. But it's a cool name, right? The, the two feet of the four of the moon. But anyway, so I guess it's those two front feet of the line. Um, but I don't know what he does with that. So the role of God's servant and, and the role of being God's father uh, entailed him approaching deity every day. That's one of his major roles. He is going to come into the Holy of Holies for that temple and uh, and into the presence of the statue that is there. And he's going to administer that statue, and then he has, as a God's servant, he has the ability, and this is why sometimes it's translated as prophet, he has the ability to go out and tell people, or at least the right to go out and tell people what the God has said that day. Um, and that, that's kind of a fun thing. So, uh, one of the major things he would do each day is try to regain the presence of deity. Uh, and there are a number of steps that, that were part of that process. So, he had to be um, washed. And for most of these, it happened multiple times because he would progress through degrees of sanctity. So there were all these gates that I talked about, and you had to go through rituals at each gate. Uh, so you would have to be washed. This is a scene, this is, uh, by the way, this building we're looking at is the one, that's the Holy of Holies. Inside there is the, where the statue of God would have been. And so it depicts on the outside some of the things that happened. This is a picture of it being washed, but we, we know it also happened in the lake, but also by pouring water on him. So he would be washed, uh, he would have incense put on him again and again and again. Uh, he would be given special priestly clothing. Uh, he would be anointed, and that's depicted here, the anointing. Um, he would have to recite names, both 
the names of the gates. He can't get through if he doesn't know the name of the gate. And then he has to also be given names that are for himself, and he has to know what his names are as he, as he goes through. So he uh, knows the names of the gates he's going through, and he receives names as he goes along. Um, he would receive amulets, um, and he would uh, make oaths or promises as he went along. Um, and eventually, he could come into the presence of deity as is depicted here. Um, and then he would wash and anoint and incense and clothe and all those things for that statue each day. And they would feed the statue, but in the end, they'd receive the food. Um, so here's looking into that building where you can see uh, going up to the Holy of Holies. And, and at the end of it, you have this stand where the statue of the God would have been. And I'll just show you a couple of other depictions. Here you can see um, the king being anointed by various gods or goddesses. Uh, the king gave offerings. This is an offering uh, table that he would give an offering on. And I say the king, but so it's always depicted that it's the king. And in theory, it's the king who does all of this, but the king can't do all of it. So he has priests that serve as proxy for him. So uh, I say the king, but it's really Hor, the priest, and a number of other priests who are doing these things for and on behalf of the king, since the king can't be everywhere doing all the rituals all the time. Um, so here you have where you give an offering, you have depictions of him giving offerings here, and in return, this is the hieroglyph for life, um, and this is the hieroglyph for power. So he's given power and life by the God and in exchange for the gifts that he gives to God in, in those offerings. Um, and here you have pictures of him being washed, but interestingly, instead of water, these are again the hieroglyph life. So he's being washed, but that gives him a, a um, and here you have uh, what we would call a divine embrace, as the king, when he is able to come into the presence of deity, they embrace each other in a sacred, holy, and ritual embrace. Uh, so that, that represents his finally gaining, regaining the presence of God. And that's the, one of the major themes of all Egyptian temples. Uh, there's another way that people would experience that, and this is a little bit hard to see, but can you see this is a, a boat? That's, can you see the curvature of the boat and it comes up with these ramp heads on it? And then it has a little booth on it right here. It's a little bit hard to see. They would, um, that's a boat that they would carry. So the Egyptians thought of travel not on chariots but on boats because they travel up and down. So they would carry the statue of the god in this boat and go out. And that's when the people, because people, most people can't go to the temple. So they would take the god out to the people and the people would have written down uh, they have to, most of them aren't literate, so they pay someone to, to do this. But they write down their questions and they throw it in front of the, the statue as the priest carried along. And depending upon the movements of the statue, you know whether it's a yes or a no or something like that. So we have prayers where they ask, should I marry this person? Should I buy this land? Is this person to be trusted? And that kind of a thing. And, and however the statue moved, is it went across your position as a way that you would learn about it? I, I like uh, some of what we do a little, I find it a little more trustworthy. But anyway. Uh, that's a fun way to do things. So uh, that would be one of Thor's major roles. And I think there's something significant to this, that one of his major roles is to represent mankind and the king in coming into the presence of God and then turn around and represent that God in coming back out to all of mankind. Let's look uh, then at uh, some of the things that he would do uh, in these two temples. Uh, there's a shared ritual between these two temples. Well, what he just described, he probably did in all three temples. There's another ritual that was very important for these two temples, the Temple of Montu, or for men who massacred his enemies, and the Temple of Amun. And it's something that is called the Execration Ritual. The Execration Ritual, and we mentioned this briefly yesterday, the Execration Ritual is designed to um, 
get rid of anything dangerous. All bad forces you ritually destroy or, or ward off through this execration ritual. Alright, so you would uh, uh, manipulate all sorts of things. You have uh, pots and, and bowls that you would write names on and break. So this is the, this is a picture actually John D did this for his, uh, he does this for his Egyptian uh, language class where he has them write them on the bowl and then they go out and break it down. I, I sometimes do that for my Egyptian text class. Uh, but uh, this one is an actual uh, one, an ancient one. Uh, that they write pots and bowls and papyrus and hairballs and figurines like this one and statues and statuettes that are made of clay, stone, wax, wood, all sorts of things. Uh, so you write on them. So for example, here are um, a couple real execration figurines. Uh, and it's a little hard to see what they are. We're going to blow up that part right there. You can see that those are little faces right there. Not particularly well done, but little faces. And on the back, this is just a drawing, but it depicts the, the prisoner being bound there. So these are the bad guys. Um, bound, but then you write on them uh, the text. Uh, so, for example, here's one of those texts. All those who will talk of rebelling in this entire country, all the Medjai, all the Wubatsepet, all the Mikshu, all the Wawat, all the Kush, all the Sha'at, all the Bekes, their soldiers, their messengers, every Egyptian which is with them, every Nubian who is with them, every Asiatic who is with them, all the, and it's broken there, but we think Libyans who are with them, all the, and it's broken there, who are with them, all the foreigners who are with them, all the Tempu, all the foreigners of the western country, all of the land of the country of Temek, all of the rulers of foreign countries, all of the Hebekas, all their champions, and all the messengers. And, by the way, death for Antemek were born of Setasobek, death for him, and for Senus were born of Imaias. Alright, so, this is pretty comprehensive, plus you've got a couple people you're really mad at that you're doing. But, uh, anyone who talks about rebellion in any of those groups, and especially these two who must have done some rebellion that they really didn't like, uh, you ritually destroy them with this, this uh, execration ritual. We won't read this whole thing, but this is just to give you an idea. This is a very similar thing where you've got, uh, and this is the other figure in there. You list all these different people and where they're from, and anyone, this is the part I want to read. Any of them who will conspire, or who, or who will rebel, who will conspire, who will talk of rebelling, who will fight, who will talk of fighting, Every rebel who speaks of his rebellion will be destroyed for all time. Right. So you're getting rid of anyone who's even thinking about this. Right? But we're taking no chances here. I, I, I've sometimes thought maybe we should uh, do execration rites for things my children are thinking of doing. Not to get rid of the children, but to get rid of the things they're thinking of doing. But so far, I haven't done that. Anyway, um, so within an execration ritual, um, this, there were daily rituals. There were priests, and more would have been one of these, who did this daily, both in the, the Temple of Amun and the Temple of Menumas versus Enemy. Uh, there was a spell for spitting on Apophis. Apophis is like Leviathan. He's the big chaos monster for uh, Egypt, so he regrets it. It's all the bad stuff. And then you, uh, you trample on him, and then you take a spear to him, and then you bind him, and then you take a knife to him, and then you set fire to him. Uh, so here are some of the specific things that are said in these of those, those rituals. It says, bind with the sinew of a red cow, and spit on him four times, and trample on him with the left foot, and then smite him with the spear, and slaughter him with the knife, and place him on the fire, and spit on him in the fire many times. Uh, that's just one of the rituals. There are others where they urinate on them, and they do all sorts of things. They bury them, but it's all exciting stuff, all right? So the idea is that this was a, a ritual that got rid of anything that was bad. Um, and 
So you have two elements then of what's going on in the temple, and these two elements are often combined. You have to get rid of everything that's bad, and then recreate or be creative to bring in all that is good, and that will get you and the world in the state where you can be rejoined with deity. Because the, the central religious tenet of Egyptian religion, and I would say probably ours as well, is that at one point mankind and gods or mankind and deity were able to be together. But then because of some different things that happen in some traditions, because one god kills another god, because he's jealous of others, it's because mankind rebelled, that there's a rift, and man and deity can no longer be together, and chaos has crept into the world. And so now all of the rituals are aimed at getting rid of the chaos, recreating us in that perfect, pristine, or Edenic state, so that then we can be able to join God again. That's that's the central tenet of the Egyptian religious thought and all of these rituals that we're talking about, and it's not so far from some things that we believe, all right? So let's look specifically at the propylon of the Montu Temple. Most of this temple is falling apart, but this, this is the part that's still standing well, and uh, we can look at it. There's a, a, a binding scene here for men who massacre his enemies. Uh, you can see that uh, he is being given by a god, he's being given a mace which he can take to use to kill uh, that person that he has bound there. This person is, is labeled as Mindu Mesopotamia's enemy, Resha, who dwells in the house of Maltu. So this is where they, an Egyptian god has been equated with a Canaanite god. If you were with us yesterday, if you remember, we talked about that happening. This is an example of it. Min, they say he's the same as the Canaanite god Resha, so they're the same guy, and they're going to give this mace to the king, and the king is Horus, the powerful mighty killer who wields the knife. Right, so he's, he's going to get rid of these enemies. On the other side, um, uh, oh, let's see here. Yeah. There we go. On the other side, you get this picture, um, and this is the king, Horus, the victorious bull who subdues evil ones, who causes enemies to cease to exist. And this is men who massacres his enemies, and it labels this one the companions of the Pophis in your kettle. Alright, so they're going to kill them and eat them, apparently. Um, now, we have to ask, is it really the king? And as I said, no, it's the king that's depicted, but the person who would perform this ritual would have been the priest. And so if we, if we go back to this picture here, so we've got one of those pictures on this inside wall, one of those pictures on this inside wall, which indicates that the space where they would perform that execration ritual would have been in between. So we know exactly where, in this case, where or would have performed these execration rituals representing the king, just representing all of them. Now I find that interesting because in, in many ways this could be considered an execration ritual. Uh, it was, I believe, the Egyptians trying to execrate Abraham because he was trying to undo the, their correct religious order by preaching against worshiping their gods. Uh, and so this is a, a, an interesting uh, element, I think, that Hor would have been interested in uh, this story of Abraham for a couple of reasons we'll look at as we go along. Now, are there parallels to this drawing? Um, the closest parallels are actually in a place called Dendera, in a temple in Dendera. Uh, those are the, the most similar drawings to the drawing that was on Facsimile 1 is in a temple. I, I think it's, it really is a temple kind of drawing. Um, and uh, they include, the text with those drawings of Dendera include uh, protective and execrative elements where they're, they're getting rid of dangerous forces and, 
and so on. But interestingly, sometimes they're getting rid of the dangerous forces, and sometimes they're protecting the person who the dangerous forces are trying to kill. And that's what I find so fascinating about this is because I believe that they were attempting to execrate Abraham, but in the end, the tables are turned, and Abraham is the one who is, is preserved, and the priest of Pharaoh is killed, so he becomes actually the, the, the dangerous thing that's driven off, and Abraham is saved. Uh, so the, the tables are turned in the Abraham story, which I think is, is really kind of fun. Um, I'd also draw your attention to this drawing down here, this facade right here. This is really unusual to be on a papyrus drawing. Uh, where we find it is on drawings in temple walls. Uh, so again, there's a, a real temple element to uh, this facsimile, which is kind of fun. Um, now, as we go to this, this temple, and again, I told you most of it is no longer standing, uh, this temple of Montu. This is the part we were looking at before, the rest of it is like this. But we know right out here was uh, what's called the Hall of Ma'at. Ma'at is the way things are supposed to be. It's like the Edenic state, and it, it's got features of creation or recreation or rebirth, all right? So while there's a lot of execration that goes on in this temple, it also has a, a creation side to it. So we'll come back to all of that. Um, let's see here. What time can we go to? 12.05. Okay, we're, we're doing all right. Let's look then at the roles that he would have fulfilled as the uh, servant of Khatsu, who is powerful or overthrowing Thebes. Uh, again, that's this temple here, uh, just outside of the, the great temple of uh, Amun. It's a small temple that has largely fallen down. Um, and uh, we should learn a little bit about this form of Khatsu. He's associated with healing and with protection from demons and with creation. All right, now, those last two uh, really are part of the, the execration ritual. You got rid of the, the bad so that creation could happen. And execration rituals were almost always followed by a creation ritual. And if you're having a creation ritual, it almost always has an execration ritual somewhere in the middle. Because again, if you're going to get things to the right state, you have to get rid of the bad stuff. In fact, if you stick with me for the next hour, uh, when we do Isaiah, we're gonna read a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says the, the same thing. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, right? You have to get rid of the bad and, and replace it with good. And you can't have one without the other and be successful. All right, so those two have to do with execration ritual, but we don't know if they did execration rituals in the constant temple. But still, it's a, these are themes that Hor would have been interested in. Um, healing is particularly uh, interesting because in Kansu's role as a healer, uh, he is reported to have saved uh, two kings from dying and these were the two kings that ruled just before Hor served as a priest. All right, so again, saving the king from, from death, healing him and saving him from death is actually one of the elements of the execration ritual. So all of this is kind of associated with the kinds of things that Hor would do. Um, we don't know exactly what they did in this little temple to this form of Khonsu, but at other similar temples, uh, we know of a profile. So that's those, those uh, entry gates that we saw, like the Wantu temple. Um, where Kansu and the king, uh, it says they created everything that exists. On, on one side it says that, and on the other side it says the king sees his enemies who fear him and die. So again, you've got paired the creation and the execration, um, the casting out of that, so that you can get back to a good state, right? And I'm not going to talk about our temple, but I think you can see uh, those elements in our temple as well, that you have to get rid of, of the bad and you're going to get back to a, a holy state where you can rejoin God's presence.
Um, above those two lines on the top of that gate, it says the king is saved from the netherworld and drives off demons. Well, it's, uh, it's not just on one side, it says that in the center I have that written wrong. Uh, and the king prospers because of the demons that are driven off. All right, so it says both of those. Um, so again, you get this idea that as you get rid of bad stuff, you bring in good stuff. All right? Now, let's ask a question. Why would it, I don't know, as I said, that uh, the text of the book of Abraham was on the papyri that bore on um, Certainly, facsimile one is a facsimile of the drawing that was on the papyri that bore on So this facsimile is certainly associated with Bor. And, and I have to say that for me, I really don't know if it was on the, uh, that papyrus or not, but one of the most compelling arguments that it was is what we're going through right now. How interested or would have been, and as by the time we finish, I think you'll you'll be with me and you'll say, yeah, I think you would have been interested in the text of the book of Abraham. You would have been really interested in that. Um, but it, so thinking if it was on there, we have to ask ourselves, why would an even Egyptian priest have a story about a Jewish religious figure? That, that's a question that's worth asking. Um, so why would even priests have Jewish stories? And it turns out that they did. Um, they had a lot of, of uh, biblical and, and Jewish stories that went beyond what's in the Bible. So just as an example, we found a whole lot of, of texts that are found in Egypt. Uh, they, they, they sometimes written in Greek, sometimes in Demonic, which is a form of Egyptian, and sometimes Coptic, which is a later form of Egyptian, is mixed in. Uh, so I once did a study, what biblical names, when we look at these collections of, of ritual texts that these Egyptian priests and Thebes had um, from a, a long time period, um, what kinds of biblical names did they use at, at the most? And uh, interestingly, well, Jehovah is the name that shows up the most. But after that, you get Abraham and Moses essentially tied. Like there are two more for Abraham, but statistically, it's a, it's a tie. Um, they use Abraham and Moses the most. Uh, now, as monotheists, we say that's weird. Why would they want to use uh, Jewish religious figures in, in their rituals? But that's because we don't adopt every god and religious person that we find because we're monotheistic. But if you're polytheistic, and you believe in tons of gods, and you learn about some more, you invite them in too. You want to make everyone happy, you want to draw on everyone's power, right? And a central feature of Egyptian religious thought is that if you can take on the, maybe not a central, but I'd say a common feature of Egyptian religious thought, is that if you can take on the attributes of a deity or a special person, that that can help you. So just as an example, there's a story in Egyptian mythology where Horus is, is either stung by a scorpion or bitten by a snake, but his mother Isis, who is magical, is able to draw the poison out and he's healed and he's fine. And so you'll find lots of spells that are for people, or rituals is a better name than spells, that are for people who have been bitten by a snake or stung by a scorpion where they say, I am Horus, and thus this poison will leave me and I will be made whole. Right? That's the idea, you take on the attributes of other people. So for example, um, what about Moses? Why would they care about Moses? Well, we find spells or rituals where if you want to see God on a high mountain, or if you want to learn God's name, and most especially if you want to learn God's name while you're on a high mountain, then you become Moses. Well, that makes sense, right? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and sees God and learns that his name is I am that I am. 
Uh, and so you can see that, that they actively do this. They, they take these Jewish religious figures and they incorporate them into their rituals because they have some characteristics that they find desirable. So did they do that with Abraham? Absolutely. He is the one that seemingly the most they, they uh, emulate. And uh, Abraham, the, the, the spells associated or rituals associated with Abraham are all over the place, but there is one thing that's a little bit more common than any others, and it's demonstrated in this kind of thing. Again, this is work that was done by John B. It's something called the Ankhpa B formula. That's uh, Egyptian, you don't need to worry about that. But uh, this is, is what it typically looks like. It's something that says, may his soul live in the presence of Osiris. But sometimes, in a number of cases, on Egyptian stele, it's replaced with, rest his soul in the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so that's interesting, right? Uh, he is often equated with Osiris. In fact, you're familiar with this time this happens, you just don't know you are. There's a very famous Egyptian story where um, there is a poor man who dies, and a wealthy but bad man who dies, and... Um, Someone has taken the afterlife to see what happens to them. And the poor man is having a glorious and peaceful rest with Osiris while the wealthy man is being tortured. And the Savior takes that story almost word for word and tells that story only he gives the, the poor man the name Lazarus. And instead of being in Osiris's bosom, he says you're in Abraham's bosom. But Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. This is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Um, and it's an Egyptian tale that predates the Savior. The Savior just takes it and, and substitutes Abraham because, for Osiris because that's apparently something that happens a bit. And it makes some sense. Abraham is associated with uh, when you die, you want to go be gathered to your fathers. The first father is Abraham for uh, the Israelites. And so Abraham is associated with somewhere you want to go and be in the afterlife. And that's the same role Osiris fills in Egyptian religious thought. So Abraham and Osiris get equated quite a bit. Um, so, what we know is that Egyptian priests in Thebes at the time of war were collecting religious spells from Jews. And as we talked about yesterday, there were a number of Jews in the area. Uh, we, we mentioned this yesterday, that after the destruction of this temple, this Jewish temple that was in Elephantine, um, that the Jews uh, kind of spread throughout Egypt, and that the highest concentration were in Edfu, Thebes, and the Fayum, and Thebes is exactly where we're talking about. So there was a large concentration of Jews in Thebes. There were priests in Thebes who were interested in collecting Jewish stories and using them in their rituals. And what do you know, Hor is one of those priests who seems to be interested in this. And he has available to him Jews and would seemingly then have collected a story about Abraham in what we call the Book of Abraham. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but it's fairly, fairly compelling to me, and it makes me think that maybe the text of the book of Abraham really is on those reply, right? Because it makes sense that Bohr would be interested in it. So, let's ask this question. Um, does the text of the book of Abraham match Bohr's interest in, in any way at all? And to ask that question, or to answer that question, we have to ask another question. Did priests sometimes bury themselves with texts that had to do with their living rituals? Usually they're buried with rituals that have to do with, with uh, what's going on with them in death. But they, we find in this time period, in this place, that a number of priests were burying themselves with texts that had to do with the rituals they performed as priests. So, now that we know that, we can ask this question. Does the text of the Book of Abraham match for interest in any way? And, and I think we'll find that the answer is yes. So let's compare this, all right? Here would be the interest that we know or has from what we know about his rituals. Um, and, and uh, let's see here. I just want to make sure I'm not going over that. No, we're okay. 
Uh, th this is what Kor would be interested in from his rituals, and these are some themes in the Book of Abraham. So Kor is interested in execration and protection. Right? And in the Book of Abraham, we learn about Abraham being protected from a priest, and that priest is slain. Right? So as I said, they were starting out to execrate Abraham, but instead the priest gets execrated by God, and Abraham is protected. I think that Kor would be interested in that. Or is interested in protection that is associated with creation. And the book of Abraham, after Abraham is protected, he is taught about creation in Abraham chapter 3 and 4 and 5. And so that protection is, is associated with creation in the book of Abraham. Or um, is interested in service to and a relationship with you. That's his central role as a, a, a God's servant is to establish that relationship, to serve that God, and to establish that kind of connection, re-establish a connection to being in the presence of that God. Um, Abraham has, in the book of Abraham, that relationship with God is established through covenant. Uh, the idea of serving God and having a special relationship with him is one of the central features of the book of Abraham as the covenant is established with Abraham in chapter one and then expounded upon in chapter two. Or was very interested in progressing to be with deity, as we talked about. And that's really what Abraham chapter 3 is about. And we're going to talk about the doctrine behind this tomorrow. We'll all be about these doctrinal elements. And I think we'll just have a lot of fun. But um, Abraham chapter 3 is about our path towards eternal glory and being with God again. So I think that, again, it's not a surprise to me uh, that Or would be interested in a copy of the book of Abraham. It just aligns with what he does. Uh, and, and I find that really interesting. It helps me understand some of this a little bit better. Okay, so we've been talking about facsimile one. And in a way, facsimile three. I didn't put a picture up here, but facsimile three, um, from Orr's point of view, or from, I don't know about Orr's point of view, but from uh, most Egyptians, that scene would be interpreted as someone being introduced into the presence of deity into the presence of, of Osiris. Um, but Joseph Smith tells us that this is actually Abraham being put on Pharaoh's throne. And Pharaoh was fine, he's associated with Horus. Uh, and, and enjoying Pharaoh or Horus's company, but actually being put on his throne. And I find that really interesting because that's, that's the idea of not only gaining God's presence, but becoming deified, uh, becoming godlike. Uh, and so that, that works exceptionally well with Horus' interests. And there is a part of me that I, I've been wondering this for a few years and I'm becoming more and more convinced as I go along. I wonder if um, Or didn't have, so this text right here is what's known as the Book of Readings. So if the Book of Abraham is on this papyrus, it's further along. But as we said, this, we don't know if, if for sure if this came from the long roll, but it seems quite possible. And that long roll was long enough to have a lot of text on it. So it's, it's likely if the text of the Book of Abraham is actually on here, there's just a little further along. Um, this copy of the book of Corinthians is actually about getting rid of uh, bad forces and being washed and then uh, reborn and creating so that you can be the kind of being you want to be in the afterlife uh, and, and uh, become godlike in the afterlife. So that's something that that Hor uh, is very interested in. And there's a part of me that doesn't wonder if he didn't take some drawings. Uh, and there, this drawing is not usually associated with the, the Book of Readings. There's one example of one that's, that's fairly similar, but it's different. This is a very unique drawing. 
Uh, it's, it's almost like a really common drawing, but it has some very unique elements that we don't find elsewhere. And you find the same thing with, with uh, facsimile 3. So I wonder if you didn't put these drawings in here so that they could serve for both texts. That it works okay for the Book of Greetings, but the way he's drawn it also works well for the Book of Abraham because you can interpret the drawing in more than one way and it, and it functions for both texts. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's uh, kind of what I'm speculating about these days. Well, let's spend a few minutes talking about um, facsimile 2. Facsimile 2 is, um, is uh, oh, we didn't want, I got these in the wrong order. Okay, so hang on, this is supposed to come up first. Uh, facsimile 2 is owned by someone named Shashank. It wasn't uh, on a papyrus roll, it's actually uh, a big uh, kind of uh, chunk of papyrus that was designed to go under the head of a mummified person. Um, and it was owned by a person named Shashank. Uh, and so let's translate this part right here. Uh, this translates as Lord of Heaven and Earth and of the Hereafter and of His Great Waters. Right? So this means that the person in some way is associated with all of creation and the great waters are the waters from which creation spring. So this is about creation. It's about creating something and being the Lord or the God of it. All right, so that's, that's interesting. Okay, we already saw this, so now we go to this one. If we translate this inscription that goes around the rim, it's called the rim inscription. It says this, I am the provider in the sun temple in Heliopolis. That's the temple to Ra, the great creator God, uh, and, and so, uh, he's the provider in this creation temple. I am most exalted and very glorious. I am a virile bull without equal. A virile bull is a symbol for having lots of offspring. Um, I am that mighty God in Heliopolis. So this is interesting because the person who owns the Shashank is saying that first of all, he serves the creator God. And then he says that he is exalted and he will have eternal offspring. And he in fact is a God or is deified. All right, so if we were to think of in, in terms of temple imagery, this inscription is all about creation and, and uh, a lord of creation but becoming a creator. And this one is about serving a god but becoming like that god, having the ability to have eternal increase in the Abrahamic covenant and so on, and, and uh, be deified. It's all very temple-oriented stuff, right? If we were to read this particular part of the inscription. It says, May this tomb never be desecrated, and may this soul and his Lord never be desecrated hereafter. Or in other words, this is the getting rid of the bad stuff. You have to cast out whatever is evil, whatever is uh, wicked, whatever is unbecoming of being with God. Uh, you get rid of that so that you can be holy and pure um, to cast out wickedness, the devil, whatever, however you want to say this, but you've got to cast out everything that might be bad. You have to execrate it, we could say, so that that has to happen so that all the rest of this stuff can happen, right? Let's translate this little part here. He shall ever be as that great God of Assyria. All right, that's, that's a, an epithet for Horus. But anyway, so this is telling Shashank, or the owner of this, this papyrus, that you will be godlike. And just so we're clear, this stuff is Galtikuk. It doesn't really say anything. <laughs> so, um, so, I find that really interesting. Joseph Smith equates all these writings with the temple in one way or another. And I find them all about creation, getting rid of bad, replacing it with perfect, pristine, Edenic creation, joining, serving God, joining God, and becoming deified. 
uh, I find that really interesting. The facsimile as a whole really does that. So if we were to look at, at this facsimile, and the, it's, it's a journey, it's about a journey, all right? And it starts um, at, at this, the, here with Amun, all right, the creator god, and it circles around this way, um, and then you get this, the, the, the representing here in this bottom part, you kind of flip around and go backwards, but this is that you have died, and you need to be reborn and join the presence of God. So, in a way, this is about having left God's presence and returning to God's presence, being born again, being recreated, having gotten rid of bad stuff. So pictorially and textually, it's about the same thing. So let's ask this, and we'll, we'll finish up on this. What the facsimiles and the text and the priest have in common? Um, the sense of a journey, a journey to regain God's presence, a desire to ward off enemies or evil, a desire to recreate, or be born again, to, to both be born again and created, we could say. Uh, service to and relationship with deity. A desire to gain God's presence and a desire to be like that deity. That's what the facsimiles have in common. That's what Hor uh, would have been interested in. That's what the book of Abraham is about. That's what the book of Greetings is about. All of these converge on these points. And in some ways, I would say this is the gospel in a nutshell. Of course, what we would add is that all of this is made possible because of Christ. There is no getting rid of the evil. There is no um, desire. And we get that even in the book of Moses, right? Satan comes to Moses, and he can't get rid of Moses until he calls on the name of the Son of God. Um, there is no ability to be reborn. Uh, there is no ability to, to have that relationship with deity or even to pray to God without Christ. Um, of course, we can have the desire to gain God's presence, but we can't become like God and regain his presence without Christ. And so that's the thing that we have to add, but I would say um, that the book of Abraham and the Egyptian temple and the facsimiles and Korah's ritual service all sound a lot like the gospel in a nutshell and like my desires. These are really my desires, and I believe yours, that we are on a journey to be with God again and, and literally thank God that it is possible because of his son, Jesus Christ. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.